You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY Podcast on Apple Podcasts. We hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. We had a uh, fantastic uh, morning in our first service. I want to share, uh, just pass along some good news with you. Uh, this morning in our first uh, service, we saw Warren Hagen. Uh, many of you know Warren, Michael and Emily Hagen. Uh, Warren uh, is their third son. Uh, he and his cousin, Hazel Duckworth, uh, Matt and Emily Duckworth, one of their twin daughters, were both baptized into Christ this morning. So we want to celebrate that, and so we want to pass that along to you so that if you see them this week or as you see them in passing, uh, just uh, you know, as part of the church, that you can uh, encourage them. And, uh, and so we just want to pass that along to you. But we, it's been a good start of the day, and so we, we hope to continue that. Today we're beginning a new series of messages uh, from the book of Nehemiah, and as we get started in that, I just want to comment on this. You know, Bobby and I are co-writing this series. He's going to be preaching a message um, in, a, in a week or so uh, from in this series, and I just want to say, you know, preachers, we get inspiration from all sorts of different places, and sometimes we borrow things from other preachers, and uh, and, you know, we share a lot of stuff. And so chances are, if you hear me say something really good, chances are it was not an original thought, okay? Somebody else said it first, and I borrowed it from them. Uh, but if you ever hear me say something that you're not quite sure about, maybe you weren't clear, maybe you misunderstood, or maybe I wasn't clear in communicating that, and you're not exactly sure what I meant, and maybe you think maybe I've even maybe stepped outside of what the Bible says, I would love for you to come and talk to me about it. Um, I would love for you just to say, hey, I'm not sure exactly what you meant by that, and we can have a conversation about it, and I can clarify what I meant, and we can walk through the Bible together, and I, I would welcome that opportunity. So um, if, if, there's ever that oppor- if there's ever that time, uh, my door's always open. Right, so I just want to throw that out there. But today we're, again, we're in a new series of messages from the book of Nehemiah. And the book of Nehemiah tells the story of Israel rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And despite the hardship and the pain, the people of Israel in the book of Nehemiah, they see firsthand how God fulfilled His promises spoken to Jeremiah during the exile. Remember, the, during uh, the, uh, Jeremiah the prophet... All of the Israelites have been exiled into different parts of the world, and Jeremiah is getting all of these promises from God, most of which he will not see fulfilled, okay? Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He cries a lot. Uh, it's, it's kind of a sad time in the, in the life of Israel. In fact, if you want to read kind of a depressing book in the Bible, read Lamentations. Jeremiah wrote it, and it's, uh, there's a reason why it's called Lamentations. He's lamenting a lot, and so you can read that. But the goal of this series is just to see how God invites all of us to participate in building His kingdom. And so that's what we're going to see over the next several weeks, is that God invites all of us to be a part of building His kingdom. And the people of Israel saw firsthand that God invited all of them to be a part of rebuilding the nation of Israel, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And this morning we're going to start with just some background context to get us caught up you know, from a historical perspective on what was going on with the nation of Israel at this point. And then we're going to take a quick look at the, ch- at the first chapter and four things that Nehemiah did before he began the project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So let's get started. And we, we're not going to start all the way back in Genesis, but we won't start far past that. You know, the nation of Israel, they really, from the time they left Egypt, they wanted a king. 
They wanted a king. They'd been led out of Egypt from, um, toward this land of milk and honey, this, this promised land that God had said, I'm going I'm to take you to, this covenant land that he had promised them. And they refused to trust God going into this promised land. Remember, they wandered around in the wilderness for quite some time because they just refused to take God at his word. And so essentially what happens is that they have to spend an entire generation out in the wilderness wandering around. And God basically kills off an entire generation. And Moses, their great leader, he doesn't even get to enter into the promised land because he had some issues trusting God. And so Moses dies and Joshua Joshua comes along and he leads the next generation of Israel into this promised land. And so they, they finally get to where God has promised them. And when they get there, they see that all these other nations around them, they all have a king. And so they want a king because we've got to be like everybody else, right? Everybody else has a king, so we need a king. And God continually says, you don't need a king. I'm the only king that you need. You need to be so different than all the other nations. And, and no other nation has a God as their king. I'm the only king you need. And they said, well, we want a king. We want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And so God says, okay, be careful what you ask for because you might just get it. If you want a king, I'll give you a king. And here's your king. And he says, Saul, Saul, you're the guy. And Saul is the guy in the nation of Israel. He is the guy. He is, he's the, you know, the, the tallest man in the land. He's just kind of muscles upon muscles. He's the best hunter in the land. All the women want to be with him. All the guys want to be him. He is just that guy. And then like most of the nation before him, he gets himself in a spot where he refused to trust God. And he lost his kingdom to a young man named David, a heart-playing shepherd boy. Now, when you think about David and Saul, you know, we don't know exactly what David's physical appearance was like, but, but when you think about David and Saul just in their attitudes, completely contrast. Saul is a, a bolsterous kind of guy, and David's a heart-playing shepherd boy. And that's who Saul loses his kingdom to. David's a guy that, you know, he's so kind of quiet and in the background that his dad even forgets about him. When the prophet comes to appoint the next king, he goes out to the sons of Jesse and says, hey, I, one of your sons is going to be the next king. And so Jesse lines up all of his sons and he says, well, here they are. Pick one. And the prophet looks at him and says, well, no, you're not it. You're not it. You're not it. Don't you have another son? And dad looks at him and says, Oh, yeah, I do. Hey, he's out in the field. One of you brothers, go out and get your other brother. And, and the prophet says, yeah, he's the king. And the Bible tells us that David becomes king, and when he becomes king, God's favor rests upon him and all of his imperfections and all of his waywardness. David was far from a perfect man. But what the Bible does tell us about David is that he's a man after God's own heart. And so here's what I know about being a man after God's own heart is that being a man after God's own heart will cover a multitude of sins. David was far from perfect. He was a murderer and an adulterer. Not the kind of guy that you think is going to be the guy that is going to lead the nation of God's people, right? That's not who, if, if we're picking people, right? If we're picking characteristics of people that we want to lead God's people, murderer and adulterer are not at the top of the list, right? But yet, here David is because he's a man after God's own heart. They, a man after God's own heart will cover a multitude of sins. And so David builds the nation of Israel into a legitimate regional power. He sets all of Israel's historic enemies into flight. It's amazing to read how many times over and over and over the Philistines come to fight the, the Israelites and David just, his, his army just whips them. You'd think like after the 32nd time they would get the, they would get the hint and they would just quit fighting, right? They, they would leave the Israelites alone, but they keep coming back and back and back and every time they just get it handed to them. And so eventually David dies though. 
They, you know, David dies and, so- and Solomon, he hands the, the kingdom over to his son Solomon. And Solomon begins to reign. And under the reign of Solomon, Israel continues to flourish. In fact, the temple is built under Solomon's reign. And when Solomon dies, and you can kind of see it coming, especially if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is a little bit nervous for what's going to come after him because in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says things like, hey, what good is it if you have all this wealth and all of this intelligence if you die and your kids are morons? Now, that's a paraphrase, but that's essentially what he says. I mean, you, you can read it. It's in there. You can read it for yourself, but, but it's in there. But we actually see why he's writing these things, because when Solomon dies, all sorts of horrible things happen to Israel. And the nation of Israel, it actually fractures into two nations. You have the northern kingdom that remains, retains the title of Israel, and then you have the southern kingdom that becomes known as the nation of Judah. Think of it kind of if, if uh, the south had won the Civil War here in the United States. We'd have two different countries. We'd have the north, which would probably not be called the United States of America. It might just be, you know, the states of America. I don't know. And then the South, which would be, you know, the Confederate states. But it would be something like that. And so you've got these two kingdoms, and the northern kingdom is an absolute train wreck from day one. They've got wicked king and wicked king and wicked king and wicked king. And all of the people in this northern kingdom follow these wicked kings right up until the northern kingdom is is sacked and conquered and and they're drug off into exile in 722 B.C. And so they're emptied and they're scattered abroad and they're made slaves by the Assyrian Empire. And Judah, the the southern kingdom, they they do a little better. They make it a little longer. They would have wicked king and then a good king and then a wicked king and then a good king. And they would go back and forth for a while. And then finally, 136 years after the fall of Israel, the Babylonians this time, through a series of deportations, sacked the city and they knocked down the temple and they burned the city gates and they they burned down the the walls of Jerusalem. And it looks like all the promises that God has made to these people, His covenant people, looks like all of these promises are now dead. So you have this nation of God that has been rescued from Egypt. Millions, we're talking millions of Jews that have now been scattered to the utmost parts of the world by different powers. You know, you had the Assyrians who were then conquered by the Babylonians who were then eventually conquered by the Persians. And now it's the Persians who are ruling the world. And at the end of the book of Second Chronicles, the Holy Spirit presses upon the Persian emperor Cyrus to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so he, he sends a man named Ezra back to Jerusalem. And, and Ezra goes with a remnant of people, and they go back with the intent to rebuild the temple. And in, in fact, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're contemporaries. And so, in fact, in a lot of the Hebrew manuscripts, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're one book. It's just called Ezra. There is no Nehemiah, it's just Ezra. And it's one big book. But, but they're not two. So they're contemporaries. And so I know that's a lot of history in a short amount of time, but, but I need everybody to be with me on this, okay? Everybody understands what I've just described. God's covenant people, they've been taken captive, their, their nation has been divided, their temple's been destroyed, their walls are down, their gates are burnt, their city's in ruin. They are in as desperate shape as a people group as they have ever been before. And all of this happened over the course of a couple of hundred years. Every, everybody with me? Everybody's tracking along? Okay, nod your head, you know. Yeah, okay, all right, all right, good. All right, so now, so now we're ready for Nehemiah, the, the beginning of Nehemiah. And here's what we're going to do just for the few minutes that we have left. We're going to hit a couple of the high spots in chapter 1, the majority of which is, is a prayer. And we're not going to read that prayer today. So I would encourage you to go back later today and read, uh, starting at about verse 5, and read uh, that prayer of Nehemiah because it's a good prayer. You should read it. But, but we're not going to read it today as part of the message. But we're going to point out just a couple of things and really hone in on one verse here in chapter four, uh, chapter 1. But let's start Nehemiah chapter 1. Here's what it says. 
says the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, which is November or December, somewhere around in there, in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, Those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, when you and I read this, this would not cause us a lot of, uh, of great, great distress for any of us because we are not a people, we're not a, a people who count on gates or walls or any of those kind of things around a city for protection. We're just not anymore. And so, so it doesn't bother us. But in ancient times, in ancient cities, this was a big deal. City gates, city walls, were, they were just as important, maybe even more important than the army uh, of those people. Without walls and without gates, you, you couldn't control your own affairs and you'd be laid waste to any group who just decided they wanted to come in and invade your town, invade your city. They, they would do it just as they wanted to. There was no way to protect your people. There was no way to protect your possessions. There was no way to govern your own affairs without gates and walls around your cities. Remember what Ezra's job was? I just talked about what Ezra's job was when he went back to Jerusalem. He was to rebuild the temple, right? And, then, and he, he goes back and he's not had a lot of success. And part of the reason he hasn't found a lot of success is because there's no security. His, his city walls are burnt and down, and he can't protect his people, and he can't protect this temple that he's trying to rebuild. And you can go back and you can read in you know, uh, the, the first five books of the Old Testament about what was in the temple and how that was constructed. And, and it's in, in the, you know, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. It's all in there, and you can read all of that for yourself. But I'm telling you, it was expensive. It was pricey. In fact, in today's economy, if you were to rebuild Solomon's temple just with the, the, um, the outside of the building, we're, we're talking materials and labor. We're not even talking about the furnishings of the temple. Just the, the materials and, and to build it and, and the labor that it would cost, we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of $140 billion in today's economy. All right? $140 billion, B, billion in today's economy that's a nice building and you're not going to build that in the middle of nowhere where you can't protect it right you're going to build it somewhere where you can you can watch it in today's world we would put all kinds of security systems around that building wouldn't we we'd make sure that we had top of the line security around it and, and Ezra can't do that he can't protect this building and so so they want to build it but what good is it to build it if people are just going to come in and tear it back down and that's what people are doing. They're coming back into the city and just ransacking the city again and again. This is why Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city whose walls are broken, though is a person who lacks self-control. A city that doesn't have walls is at the mercy of whatever band uh, of invaders wants to come through, whatever group of thieves, whatever group of you know, malicious group just wants to come in and do whatever. You know, they're just like a person that can't control their own selves. They, they go with whatever whim. They just go and do whatever they want to do. We know that that's not a good thing, right? You've got to have a little bit of self-control. So let me give you maybe a modern-day example of a city without walls and a city that's in a desperate need. Anybody ever heard of the town of Camden, New Jersey? Probably, maybe, probably not. Most of you probably not. It's not far from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but, but let me tell you about Camden, New Jersey because you're probably not going to vacation there, okay? Camden, New Jersey is a town... Um, like I said, just uh, not far from Philadelphia. They have about 79,000 residents, most of which all live at or below the poverty line. 
Okay, Camden, so desperate is the city of Camden that the tax revenue is so short that they have 40 people involved in their police department. That's not 40 police officers. That's 40 people in their whole police department. That's 911 and, and dispatchers and, and uh, you know, detectives and boots on the ground, all of that. It's 40 people in the whole agency for a town of 79,000 people. To help you understand how desperate this is, with less than 30 boots on the ground, the city of Flowermont, which is nearby, which is far less violent than Camden, it has 60,000 residents and 125 people in their police agency with 80 boots on the ground. Things have been so desperate in Camden, New Jersey, that the police won't even respond unless it's a violent crime that is currently occurring. Okay, so if, if you have a violent crime that happens and it's not currently occurring, they're not coming. If you were to come home and you're, you walk into your house and you realize your house has been broken into and all of your stuff's been stolen and your house has just been trashed, you call the police, you know what they're going to tell you to do? They're going to tell you, take pictures of it and email it to us and we'll get to it when we can. Not because they don't want to help you and not because they don't care, it's just they can't. They, they don't have enough resources. They're, they're so overwhelmed with 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 what's going on in their city, that they just don't have the ability. So unless it's a violent crime that is currently occurring, the police don't respond. Now what type of culture flourishes in a city where the walls are down and the gates are burnt? It's not the honorable. In a city like Camden that has no effective police force, what grows is anarchy and what grows is chaos, what rules is desperation and violence. What rules is I have to get mine and I have to take care of me. It's a me first mentality. And so you have a high drug culture and you have a high violence culture. This is a city in, in the modern sense without walls where the wicked and the deplorable flourish because there are no walls and the gates are burnt. And so what we see happening here is that this report comes back from Jerusalem and, and Nehemiah gets this report and the walls are down and the gates are burnt. And let's look at Nehemiah's response. Let's see how he responds to this report. Verse 4. And this is where I really want us to pay attention to. How he responds to this. He says, When I heard these things, when I heard this report, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Now when we initially read that, we think that's a little bit of an extreme response, isn't it? I mean, yeah, we get it. He's upset that the city's in ruin, but... but also take into consideration this and it might even make Nehemiah's response seem even a little more extreme is that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia Nehemiah lives in a palace 800 miles away from the city of Jerusalem he samples the king's wine that's his job he samples the king's wine and the king's food to make sure it's not poisoned he's drinking the very best wine on earth not that three buck stuff uh that, you know, that three-buck chuck stuff you get in a box at Trader Joe's. He's not drinking any of that stuff. He's drinking the very best stuff in the world. He's got the very best. He's living in luxury. There's nothing in this world, in his world, that reminds him of what's going on back in Jerusalem. Fox News isn't updating him every hour with a little ticker reminding him what's going on. His Twitter update is not telling him what's going on back in Jerusalem. In fact, it, it took months, maybe even a year, for Hananiah to get to the citadel, to get to this palace, to give Nehemiah this report. And when he gets this report of this covenant family, his ethnic brothers and sisters, most of whom he has never met, probably none of them he's ever met, it takes his knees out. It's a gut punch. It says, when I heard these things, I sat down. 
His reaction is one that, you know, when you get that phone call in the middle of the night that something's wrong, or you read that text message that you weren't supposed to read, or, or you went to the doctor and you got that doctor's report that you thought was going to be nothing, but it turned into be something. This is that kind of reaction. It took his breath away. And the only thing he can do is sit down like, I, I've got to have a seat for this kind of news. And then it says he did four things. It says Nehemiah, he's going to come up with a plan. Nehemiah's going to go to the king, and you're, you're going to hear more about that next week, and he's going to come up with a plan to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. But before he even considers that, he does four things. And I just think that sometimes when our world gets rocked, when our, our world gets turned upside down, we're so quick to try and come up with a plan of action, so quick to try and fix whatever's wrong in our world, that, that, that we, just, we just move on because we're fixers, right? Especially men. Men, we're fixers. If, if the wife comes home from work and has had a bad day and they start telling you all of their problems, we're going to listen for a, for a minute, right? Until they tell us what the problem is. So ladies, if you want us to listen longer than just a minute, don't tell us what the problem is until the very end, okay? Say whatever you got to say and then tell us the problem. Because the moment you tell us the problem, we stop listening. Because we go into fix mode. We're, we start processing how we're going to fix this problem. And that's, that's just how we operate. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. Nehemiah, is, he, he sits down. He's, he's got to sit down. And it says he does four things. He's so moved with compassion for God's people. Here's what it says he does. He sat down and he wept. He cried. He is so moved by the plight of God's people 800 miles away from where he's at. And there's nothing he can do in that moment for those people. He is helpless and they are hopeless. And so he weeps. And then it says for some days that he mourned. And we tend to think of weeping and mourning as, as something you do when, when someone dies, right? That's, that's, that's when we weep and we mourn. Well, for all intents and purposes, the, this nation of Israel, God's covenant people, they, they were dead. All these promises that God had made to them, they had, they had seen most of them start to come true, and now they had been wiped away. At least they thought anyway. It seemed like everything that could go wrong had gone wrong, and for, in their minds, it's over. So he's mourning. He's mourning the loss of, of what seems like the end of the story. And so he mourns. And then it says, you know, he says he did this for, for multiple days. It says for some days. This isn't like, you know, for two or three days, I, I, I kind of moped around and I felt bad and then I got over it and I moved on. No, this is for several days. That's a different kind of compassion. That's a different kind of empathy than we see in our world today. What happens in our world today when somebody gives us some bad news? What do we say? What do we do? We say, well, well, I'll, I'll pray for you, right? Because that's the Christian version of, hey, call me if you need something, right? That's the polite version of what we're supposed to say. But, but we, we say that not because we mean it, because it's just what you're supposed to say. And here's the thing. If, if we're a Christian and we say, hey, I'll pray for you, you know what? Pray for them. Really, pray for them. Because here's, here's, here's what I found, is that we say that, and, we, and most of the time we can't even be bothered. We're so busy that we can't even be bothered to pray for the people that we've said we're going to pray for. How busy are we that we can't utter, we can't take 10 seconds to utter one or two sentences on behalf of somebody that we've committed to pray for? If you're that busy that you can't say, God, God, I don't know what's going on in their life, but whatever it is, can you, can you just be with them? Can you help them? Can you use me to encourage them? If you can't take 10 seconds to utter some simple prayer like that, you're too busy. Now, I don't want to question what your priorities are. That's not my responsibility. But I'm just going to tell you, if you're too busy to pray for somebody, you're too busy. There needs to be a rearrangement in what your priorities are and what you think is important. When was the last time 
When was the last time you were so moved by the plight of someone else that it caused you to, to weep or to mourn for someone? When was the last time that, that someone else's affliction caused you to say, you know, I'm going to do something. I don't know what it is that I'm going to do, but I, I'm, I'm not sure. But something must be done. And I'm so thankful for people like, like Hank and Bunny Hinton who were moved by the need of the homeless people in our community. They worked with Room in the Inn for one winter, and they said, this is a good thing that they're doing. This is a good thing, but it's not enough. Something more needs to be done. And they didn't wait for somebody else to come along and do something for them. They, they prayed about it, and, and, and they, they looked at what, what resources they had, and they said, you know what? We can do something about it, and they did. I'm so thankful for people like Calvin Minton. Calvin had a, actually WDRB picked up his story this morning, and, and I hope you get a chance to watch it. Um, they picked up a story that, you know, where he makes crosses and, and what, you know, he sells them. And then he turns all the money over to the homeless shelter and just to people in need so that he can, that's just his way to help. Because that's a great example of loving God and loving people. People that Calvin doesn't know. But it's, it's people that are important to God because, and they're important to him because they're important to God. Here's what I absolutely believe this to be true, that God is calling each of us to a ministry. God has a specific ministry, a specific plan for each of us. And if God has called you to it, he will provide the means to see you through it. If God has called you to it, he will see you through it. I believe that. I believe God has called each of us to do ministry. And some of you, we don't have to look 800 miles away to see a need. We don't have to look 800 miles away to see what's going on. We can look right in our own backyards to see that God, is, God has a ministry. God has a call for our lives, and he's simply waiting on us to move, to take action. It says, Nehemiah wept and he mourned, and it says he fasted. And this may get a little touchy for some of us because if this is a spiritual discipline that we don't like to talk about. And we don't like to talk about it because we're Christians. And if there's one thing that the church does well, not just this church, but churches all over, if there's one thing that churches do well, it's we eat. We, we like to eat. And hey, I, I'm, I'm with you on this. So I've gained almost 20 pounds since we moved here. I, I, you all have fed me well. But Nehemiah knew that he had a huge decision to make. He knew that he would need to rely completely on God, and so he fasted. That's the point of fasting is to be able to rely on God's strength. You know, food is an obvious source of strength. It gives us strength to get through the day. And so when we go without food, when we fast, we have the opportunity to, to draw from God's strength, to rely solely on Him. What Jesus says, said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Bread, bread food is an obvious source of, of strength. But how much greater is the strength that God can provide from the Word of God? So when we fast, when we feel weak, when we go without food, that's our moment to lean in, to draw close to God, to rely solely on His strength. And here's what I found to be true about fasting and so many other people to be true, found to be true about fasting is that when there are big spiritual decisions to make, that's the time that more often than not I have been in my clearest thinking, that I am more often than not able to discern uh, God's voice and, and to hear God's voice, not an audible voice, but to, to discern what the Holy Spirit would, would have me to do. Those, those have come in times of fasting. And here's the other thing about fasting for Christians, and we definitely don't like this part. It's expected. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 16, he said, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. And there's more to that verse, but the emphasis here is that, that I want to point out is he said, when you fast. It's an imperative command there. It's not like he said, you know, if you feel like it or, or from time to time or, or, you know, if, if, you know, it's kind of one of those maybe things. No, he said, when. It's, it's an imperative command that, that it's expected that we would fast that, that it would be part of our spiritual discipline. 
And I get, I get that, you, you know, you can't go, some of you can't go long periods of time. Your blood sugar drops and it creates an unhealthy, you know, uh, environment for you. Nobody's asking you to be like Jesus and go 40 days in the wilderness without eating. Nobody's asking you to do that, okay? However long you decide to fast, that's between you and God. That's, that's completely up to you. The point is, is that you do it. You know, that it is a part of our spiritual life. It's a part of our spiritual dif- discipline. The last thing that Nehemiah did was he prayed. Fasting and praying, it always seemed to go hand in hand. And in fact, that's kind of the point of fasting. If you're not praying while you're fasting, then you're really you're just kind of dieting or you're just with not eating. But Nehemiah knew that something had to be done. And before he jump-started into this plan and got all excited and said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, he prayed. Sometimes we have great intentions and we, get, we have great plans and we start to plan and we never stop to consider what God might have us to do. I think sometimes our plans are really good, but how much better could they have been if we would have just stopped to consider what God might have wanted us to do? Sometimes the best thing that we can do is simply slow down and stop and listen for God. Just stop. We live in a culture where where it's an instant gratification culture and we move from one thing to the next thing to the next thing and we never slow down and stop. It says for some days... Nehemiah did this. For some days, he, he mourned, and he fasted, and he prayed. You want to know how many days that was? Well, chapter 2 starts with the month, it says, in the month of Nisan, which would have been early spring. So for about four months, before Nehemiah ever went to the king with his plan to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, for about four months, Nehemiah mourned, and he fasted, and he prayed. Sometimes the thing that we can do, the best thing we can do is simply slow down and stop. And pray. You know the thing that, ne- that all these things that Nehemiah did and have, have in common? The weeping, the, the mourning, the fasting, you know what they all have in common? Is they all weaken you. They all weaken you. When you weep and you mourn, when you go through an experience that causes you to do those things, they, it emotionally drains you. And I mean, even sometimes physically drains you and spiritually drains you, but, but it emotionally weakens you. And, and again, the whole point of fasting is that it would weaken us so that we might draw on God's strength, not our own. Nehemiah weakened himself so that whatever God was about to do through him, and I'm not convinced that he knew that it was going to be to go back and rebuild the wall, but, but that it would be done through God's strength, not his own. That he, was, he had to weaken himself so that he could do it through God's strength, not his own. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be journeying through the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to see, how God, see God do an incredible work through the nation of Israel that was sparked by the obedience of one man, who was moved with compassion for a group of people that he probably didn't know, that he probably never met. But he knew that God loved them. And because God loved them, he loved them. So let me ask you as we wrap up this morning, if you were to let go of some pride, to let go of some ego, to let go of some arrogance, what might happen in your life? What might happen in our lives if we were to let go of those things? And instead of relying on our own strength, we allowed the strength of God to work through us. We allowed the strength of God to to let us serve the people who are loved by God. What might God be calling you to do? Who might God be calling you to serve? What incredible thing might God be asking you to do that might change the lives of who knows how many people? If you would simply weaken yourself so that the strength of God might be empowering you. That's what I want you to be thinking about over, over the next few weeks as we discover this amazing power of God who invites each of us to be a part of building his kingdom.
And maybe today is the day that you join his kingdom. Maybe today is the day that you, you've been thinking about for a while. You've been wrestling with, am I in or, or am I not? You know, do I, do I want to go all in? Do, do, I, do I not? Do I just dip my toe in do I, or do I take the plunge? Maybe today's the day where you've been wrestling with that and you decide, hey, I'm all in. Today, you, you, you take the plunge and you're going all in. Maybe today's that day where, where you think, I, I, I've got to do it. I can't, I can't wait any longer. And that's the beautiful thing about baptism is that baptism puts us, it, we put ourselves in, in a weakened and vulnerable position. That's what we do. We do. We're in a weakened and vulnerable position because it's a baptism that we admit we can't do anything for our own selves, that we can't do anything for our own sin, that we need somebody else to, to solve our sin problem. And it's at baptism that we find the blood of Jesus strong enough to cover the harshest of sins. Whatever sin that you might have in your life, the blood of Jesus is strong enough to cover Maybe today's the day where you say, hey, I've been a Christian for a long time, but, and, and so I don't necessarily need to be baptized, but I want to I be a part of this church. I, I, I want to be a member of this church. And, and let me be real honest with you. Church membership, it, it, it doesn't get you into heaven, okay? And it doesn't really get you a whole lot of other perks other than you get to vote on the budget, okay? Um, but it does say, when you, when, when you become a member of this church, it says, I, I want to be a part of what this church is doing to reach out into the community and to reach out into the greater world and to be a part of all the things that they are doing. This is, this is who I'm calling family. And so maybe today you need to be, you just say, hey, I, I'm all in with this group of people. We'd love for you to do that. Maybe today is the day where you just say, hey, I, I've been a Christian for a long time and, and I've, I've, you know, I, I kind of zigzagged and, and wandered away and, and I've come back and I've wandered away and, and you just need to, to rededicate your life to the Lord. You can do that right where you're sitting at. You don't have to come down front. You can do that right where you're sitting at. You, you can say the same prayer that I prayed daily. Lord, would, would your grace and forgiveness cover me and, and transform my life into something that looks like your son Jesus? I have to pray that every day because my life does not, without that, does not look like the, the son of Jesus or the, uh, God's son. And so maybe today is simply the day that you do that. And if you need to do that publicly for accountability purposes, then, then we'd love for you to do that and to pray with you. But either way, God is calling you to do something. He called Nehemiah to do something, and Nehemiah, as we're going to see, acted. And so the question is, will you act? Will you respond? So let's stand as we sing.